If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this January 27th, 2019. I am John Ziegler. I am the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And uh, this edition of the World Corning Zig podcast will be a little bit different for a couple of different reasons and in a couple different ways. First of all, there will only be one hour during this particular episode of the podcast. We will not have a guest hour. And that is likely going to be the way things will be going forward. Now, that sounds bad, but that's actually good news. I'll explain why, because there's going to be a major change in the way uh, that I do my podcast uh, that I'll explain uh, momentarily. Uh, Before I get into that and a big announcement regarding uh, where we're going with this podcast, I do want to just mention part of the reason why we haven't done one uh, since early January, and we've only done a couple over the last uh, two months. And and that is that one of the challenges that we've had uh, in my life is that my wife has been going through, through some very, very serious health problems and had to have major surgery a couple of weeks ago. And thankfully, uh, she got through that as well as could possibly have been expected. Uh, essentially, I don't know if she technically had cancer or was pre-cancer, uh, but the tests following the surgery have indicated that she is cancer-free. So that is outstanding news. Uh, she, as you might expect, has been a nervous wreck for the last uh, several months, basically convinced that our two young daughters are going to have to grow up with just me taking care of them, which is horrifying to her. <laughs> numerous levels worse than just her not being there. But the idea, I actually think it was more difficult for her psychologically to comprehend that her daughters might be in my hands than that she might not be around. I'm I'm not making that up. I, I think that was probably a greater psychological burden on her. Now, I was never particularly worried because it sounded to me like this was uh, caught early and she was in good hands. Uh, but, uh, you know, she's a bit of a worrywart, and obviously it's her, and I totally understand and respect all that. But that has been a, a huge issue in the Ziegler family, which it appears the worst is over. So thank goodness for that. 
but that has been uh, taking a toll uh, behind the scenes. And thank you for everybody. I, I did mention this on the day of the surgery on Twitter, and the response was overwhelming. So thank you to everybody who has provided their uh, good thoughts and prayers for my wife. It, uh, I don't know if it had any impact, but uh, the result so far has been as good as could possibly be expected. Now, uh, now for the news regarding the, the way we do this podcast. If you're a fan of this podcast, and if you're listening now, you probably are, the, uh, I have been implying for quite a while that this podcast was probably going to end maybe very, very soon. And in fact, uh, for a while, I thought that the end of 2018 would be the end of the podcast, that that would be the last uh, time we did this. We would finish it up uh, post-midterms. Uh, uh, I'd have my uh, six-year-old daughter, uh, Grace, on one more time. It's costing money. And, and that would be the end of it, uh, largely because the money that Grace is referring to had basically run out. Then a couple of things happened. Uh, one, there was a, a bank error that got corrected, which uh, gave us a little bit more life, but that was only momentarily. And I, I was thinking, okay, well, we could – milk this out through maybe most of 2019 uh who knows you know but if as long as you just keep surviving then maybe something weird will happen well something weird has happened and and that is that i got approached by a uh, a company that uh i don't know you probably have never heard of them because they're huge in australia and great britain and brazil and some other places but they're creating a series of podcasts under the label The Global Story Network. And their plan is to be an international, uh, I guess, podcasting company with a bunch of other things that they do. And um, and they, they seem to know what they're doing, and they, they seem to be exceedingly legitimate. And they approached me a couple of months ago about doing a podcast for – both a domestic and an international audience that will be focused on Donald Trump. And I was like, well, you got the right guy. I mean, if you're looking for a conservative who has cracked the code on Donald Trump and who isn't afraid to tell the truth about him, uh, I realize there's not too many of us out there, but I'm certainly in that category. And, and that seemed to be what they were looking for. And you know, when, whenever these things happen, you're never sure, okay, is, you know, do you want this to occur? Is the, is the deal legitimate? Is something going to happen during the negotiations that's going to break it all down? And, you know, finally this week we were able to sign a deal. That even, even into the last moment, there were a couple of things that came up that I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Do I really want to do this? Um, but they were corrected. And so it appears as, well, that's more than appears. We, we've done the deal. We've signed the deal. Uh, and it, and what the plan is, is for me to do this second podcast uh, probably twice a week. There probably, I'm sure, will be weeks in which we can't do it twice a week. But the, the normal production plan will be for twice a week. It's got a very catchy title that uh, I'm not going to share with you now because I want to wait until we officially announce. But, uh, but the, for the purposes of the World According to Zig podcast, this is actually potentially very good news. Because what this means is that I will be in the production studio, uh, obviously twice a week, with one of those days uh, providing the opportunity on Sundays to do another edition of The World According to Zig. Now, that probably means 
I'm only going to be doing one hour on those Sundays, but that'll be one hour almost every Sunday, which essentially will get us back to where we were doing this, you know, a year or so ago. And, um, and so, you know, there are pros and cons to this, but the pro will be that there will be far more episodes of the World According to Zig podcast, and it will almost be done universally on Sunday mornings here on the West Coast, probably be posted early afternoon on the East Coast uh, each and every Sunday. So that, that's the good news. Now, how long that will continue for, I have no idea. No, no, no one knows in this business uh, what that means. Uh, you know, I, I would be shocked if it was not for at least the first half of this year, if not uh, longer than that. Uh, the contract is for longer than that, but obviously all contracts can be broken. And um, but I'm excited about this. This is this is going to be interesting, a new challenge, and it will keep the uh, the World According to Zig podcast alive for at least a little bit longer. And it will also it'll change this podcast at least a little bit. Not only will there be fewer guests, mainly because I just won't have the the time to be able to get into that. And, and we've had such amazing guests on this show. I mean, considering that we have a rather small audience and I'm not a celebrity and we have no money or resources, it's been ridiculous the number of really quality guests that we've had. Uh, it you know so, so it's a shame that that part will probably be going by the wayside. Although not entirely, I'm sure we'll still have occasional guests on on this show um, but it will also at least provide the opportunity for it to continue uh, on a more regular basis and uh, so that that's good news uh, and and who knows how long that will go but we'll do the best that we can and obviously I, I urge you to to keep uh, attention to my social media specifically my Twitter account uh, to find out more information about when exactly we're going to start this uh, brand new uh, podcast for the Global Story Network. In fact, today we are uh, recording the first episode. Uh, when we're going to drop that, we don't know, um, but it'll be evergreen, kind of an introduction to the podcast and why it is that I'll I'll be doing a podcast about uh, Donald Trump on a uh, on a biweekly basis. Now, uh, kind of as a transition, although this is such a good story, I would tell this regardless. I mentioned Twitter. And so much of my life is on Twitter, which is such a waste of time in most cases. Not all, but most cases. I hate Twitter in so many ways. Uh, but, you know, that's the, the medium where, you know, um, most people are paying attention to, to what I do. And it's the easiest way uh, to get the word out about what I'm doing and share my columns from, from Mediate and, and what have you. <clears throat> but uh, I am, I'm not a fan of the company. And I'm amazed that the company is even able to exist especially when you consider how utterly pathetic their uh, customer service is. I mean, trying to get a human being at Twitter to fix a problem, I, I'm telling you it must be easier to get a hold of Vladimir Putin uh, inside the Kremlin. I'm, I'm serious. I, I really believe I would have a better chance of speaking to someone close to Putin if I got on the phone and started dialing than I – than I do uh, speaking to someone at Twitter. And several years ago, I did a Twitter ads campaign for the radio show and for the podcast. And, you know, the, the way Twitter allows you to do it is, is kind of interesting where you can really very, very micro-focused target who you're trying to attract as, a, as an audience. And that's good. 
But uh, And so it was a fairly positive experience, a little expensive, but okay, fine. And then all of a sudden, and I don't remember exactly when this happened, but it was a couple of years ago, I got a notice that, that my account was no longer eligible for Twitter ads. I'm like, why? What, what, there was there'd been no problem. And, and all I could get, I couldn't get an actual human response. I got a computerized response after, you know, constantly saying, uh, please tell me what the hell's going on here. The best I could get was a computerized response telling me that there was hateful content on my Twitter page. Uh, and I'm like, what the hell? What What do you talk hateful content? First of all, anything can be considered hateful content, but uh, whatever. So every once in a while, I would try to get a response to find out what the hell this was about, but I was never super motivated to do it, mainly because I, I realized that trying to get a human at, at Twitter was a hopeless case. There was just no way of of being able to do this. Well, because of this new podcast, the the contract calls for a fairly substantial amount of money to be spent right off the bat on a promotional campaign, which my intention was to do it via Twitter. And as and going through the process here, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, even though I'm creating a new account, is my old, for the podcast, for the Trump podcast, is my old account going to somehow prevent the new account from being eligible to advertise on Twitter? And I still don't know for sure what was connected to what, but sure enough, there was an eligibility problem. And I'm like, oh, criminy. This is, this is just going to drive me crazy. So I decide, all right, I'm going on a full court press to find somebody at Twitter that will actually speak to me to explain what the living hell is going on here. And I try everything. I mean, there's literally one phone number for Twitter that all it does is get you to a very rudimentary uh, uh, recorded message where you have like three options. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to speak to a human. And there's no email addresses anywhere. And I'm I'm tweeting it like high-end muckety-mucks at the top of the corporate ladder. Can someone please help me? And a couple of them kind of responded but never gave me an actual human being's name or an email address. Certainly not a phone number. That would be, ooh, can't do that. We might actually have to speak to somebody, one of these unwashed people. And, um, and so finally I decide, you know what? I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. I'm going to I'm going to make a veiled threat. And so I contact their press department. I say, you know, look, I'm thinking about writing a column uh, about my ordeal with Twitter with regard to this uh, eligibility issue on my account. But before I do that, I'd like to give it one last chance to actually speak to a human. Well, finally, that got a response. And they said, well, let me see what I can do. And sure enough... It's, it's amazing how this occurs. Once you finally get their attention, then all of a sudden, everything flips on 180 degrees. So now all of a sudden, within a day, I'm on a conference call with four people about this issue at Twitter. Now, what's interesting about this, it, it, like, every, this is not a shock, but the entire Twitter culture is so unbelievably 
overtly liberal in every possible way. It's even difficult to have a conversation with these people because the words they're using don't make any flipping sense to me. It's, it is like the most politically correct place on the planet. Uh, and within this conversation, we finally get to the crux of the matter. Someone finally explains to me why my account was ineligible. And what they tell me is that there's a link on my Twitter page to freespeechbroadcasting.com. I'm like, okay, so what's the problem? And they say, well, on your freespeechbroadcasting.com page, there's a photograph that advocates against a person because of their race, ethnicity, or heritage. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And then they say, it's a photograph of a t-shirt involving Elizabeth Warren in an Indian headdress in the Redskins logo. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. This is my then three-year-old daughter in a t-shirt where Elizabeth Warren's face has been placed inside the Washington Redskins logo. And, and I, I'm trying to restrain myself because I realize I'm just trying to get this problem fixed. I don't need to make a political statement at this point, but I'm laughing out loud. And, and I'm not sure whether or not these people realized how absurd this was, but let's just think about the insanity of this. Forget about the fact that it's a picture of a three-year-old girl in a T-shirt. That, that, that's absurd right on its face. But let's examine what the T-shirt is. First of all, the T-shirt doesn't even technically advocate against Elizabeth Warren. The T-shirt says, if liberals get what they want, uh, and then it's, it has her in the Redskins logo, and then it says Washington Warrens. Now, the implication of that is she could be president, right? That that if that's, If liberals get what they want, she could be president. So there's no advocating against her. It's not like... This is, you know, Elizabeth Warren is a slut. I mean, this is this is this is this is a photo, a, a depiction of Elizabeth Warren with a real photo put inside the Redskins logo because obviously she's very famously uh, uh, claimed to have Native American ancestry. So, so th that's number one. But the most obscene part of the whole thing is, to me, is that. The whole point of the parody, which is another element of this that should have mattered, that this is a parody. The whole point of the parody T-shirt is, and and the her ensuing DNA test is that it's not her race or ethnicity or heritage. That's the point. So think about how utterly insane this is, because obviously she's a liberal, and because of political correctness. If you claim. This is where it gets dangerous. If you claim erroneously to be of a certain heritage, it actually protects you from being criticized over making the false claim be to the point where you can't even have a link on your Twitter page that goes to a photograph, which, by the way, is on the bottom of the page. That's how flippin' insane this world and. And, and here's the cherry on the top of, of the absurdity Sunday. Twitter is supposed to be a, a, a allegedly 
a company founded on the concept of free speech. That's what the whole thing is supposed to be about. So, so when I stopped my laughing, I decided to, um, yeah, okay, whatever. You know what? Uh, ordinarily, I would fight this, but I'm not even going to bother. So we took the picture down uh, from freespeechbroadcasting.com, and that uh, the problem has apparently been alleviated. So thank goodness the world <laughs> does not have to be exposed to my daughter Grace in an Elizabeth Warren T-shirt on a link to from my uh, Twitter landing page. Oh, my gosh. We're so screwed. We are so flipping screwed. All right, now obviously the big news this week was the um, the end of the uh, 35-day uh, government shutdown, which has to be the, the most uh, pointless uh, shutdown that we've ever experienced. It's the longest we've ever experienced. Uh, but this one was done uh, totally and completely for the personal vanity of one person, which was Donald Trump. And it did not go well. Uh, there were numerous mistakes that Trump made before eventually caving. Of course, his strongest fans will claim that he did not do that. I'll get to that more in a second. Uh, but he made numerous mistakes in this. If there was ever a situation that exposed that he is the opposite of what he says that he is, which, by the way, that's how you crack the Trump code in 90% of the cases. Whatever he's bragging about most you know that is a deficiency. So by saying that he's a great deal maker, you know he's actually a really horrible deal maker. You know he wrote the book, or didn't really write it, but it was under his name, the uh, the art of the deal, because he was a terrible deal maker. Now, you know obviously he's gotten some deals done that worked out okay for him, but he's all as president, I can't think of one deal that he has made, and and this is by far the worst example of, of what a terrible deal maker he is because he got in so beyond his head on this situation. And, and let me just point to where he made his biggest mistakes. The, the biggest mistake, which hardly ever anyone ever mentions, but it's so incredibly obvious, is that he effectively waited until after the Republican Party no longer controlled the House of Representatives to get serious about a deal. Now, how does that make any flipping sense? I mean, the first thing you obviously need to understand about making a deal is that leverage is everything. Well, you have far more leverage when Republicans are controlling the House than when Democrats are. But Trump didn't bother with that. Let's forget about for a second that he had two years before this to try to get a wall done. This was his number one campaign promise. He had the opportunity, was given, was given by the other side the money to do this, but didn't like the deal, so passed on it. So it never got done for two years. Then at the very last moment, knowing he's going to lose his majority, instead of making sure he makes as le as less bad a deal as he possibly can from November till January, when he still has the House of Representatives in Republican hands, he waits and allows the government to be shut down during that time period without a deal until Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two was in that infamous showdown 
in the Oval Office with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, he overtly took credit for the ensuing shutdown, eliminating any ambiguity as to who's to blame. I mean, Republicans always get blamed for these things as they are. It, you know, that's just the nature of the way people look at the two parties and in the nature of the way the media reports on these things. So you're always going to get a majority of people blaming Republicans. But Trump eliminated any ambiguity right off the bat by saying, I will gladly take the mantle on this. Well, that eliminates any leverage you have there because you can't. You can't reasonably blame the other side. Yeah, you can blame the other side to your cult, but you're, you need more than your cult to pull this off. The other mistake Trump made, and this is key, again, hardly anyone ever mentions this. If you're thinking about this from a negotiating standpoint, the worst thing you can do in an adversarial negotiation, this is not like a job negotiation where both sides are somewhat incentivized in the same direction to make a deal and you're going to be working together, like if, if you're going to hire someone to do a job. This is a situation where Democrats just got elected to the House of Representatives. They just got a majority in the House because their job was to oppose you. That's why they won the House. So, so now you're going to make the shutdown over what? Over the thing you want most. <laughs> now, now, your number one campaign promise, the wall. Something that not one Democrat is invested at all in seeing happening. So you're targeting, you're, you're telegraphing what exactly it is you want most and then making the entire shutdown over that thing. Well, what's the incentive for Democrats to give it to you? None. Zero. They have an anti-incentive to give that to you. Now, in theory, and I'm not, I'm not saying this would have worked, but in theory, a good negotiator would have been far more subtle about this. Let's say you wanted the wall money. What you would make the shutdown about would be something Democrats cared about. Your desire to, I don't know, cut Obamacare funding or something like that. You make it about what something they care about that they don't want to see happen. And then when you negotiate, you have something to negotiate with. You can say, okay, look. I'm going to bail on my plan to defund Obamacare. I'm just using that as an example. But in exchange, I want $5 billion for my wall. Then you at least have a shot. But because Trump is so toxic, you know, the old Rick Wilson thing, everything Trump touches dies. The reality here is that once Trump makes a something a priority, this is what he wants most, that's what Democrats are least likely to give him, especially something as divisive as a wall. Now, I'm, I'm in favor in concept of a wall, but at what price? And I'm not just talking financial price. I'm talking political price. And, with, and as is the case with everything with Trump, it is far too great a price we're going to pay for nothing in return. And this wall was never realistic. 
It was never realistic politically. It was never realistic logistically. And I would say the number one thing in this whole insane shutdown debate that never got mentioned is there's never going to be a wall. Even if by miracle Donald Trump gets the money, and, and let's be clear, the $5 billion that they've been debating about doesn't even cl- come close to getting w- what he originally planned done. Not even close. It, it's going to be many times that to actually build a wall on our southern border. But here's the part that it's amazing to me that this never got discussed, at least not that I saw. And that is, at most, Donald Trump is going to be president for six more years. I think the odds are against that right now, but Democrats may fuck up their nominating process so much that that Trump does win re-election. That is certainly a possibility. But, you know, if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, barring some sort of humongous black swan event, Trump is only going to be in office for two more years. But even let's, let's say it's six more years. Because of the logistics, because of the legal wrangling, because of the imminent domain issues, there is no way, there is no way within six years to get this thing substantially built. So what does that mean? Well, because it's his number one priority and he will be gone in six years and he ain't going to be replaced by a Republican. And there's just, I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom how that happens. The most likely scenario is someone from the opposing party, whether it's in two years or in six years, is going to replace him. The first thing they're going to do is put a stop to the wall. That's the first thing they're going to do. Again, because he made it such a huge priority. It has his fingerprints literally all over it. And like he did with Obama, trying to dismantle as much as he could of Obama's agenda and legacy. That's the first thing a Democratic president's going to do. So even if everything goes 100%, which it's not going to, 100% perfectly, there is no chance, repeat, no chance that a wall would ever get substantially built. It would never get completed. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if even the parts that might get built got torn down because he's that politically toxic. So this is all over nothing, nothing, poorly executed, no plan, and he got humiliated by Nancy Pelosi. Now, I realize it's not over yet because we're going to do this all over again in three weeks, but the reality is his leverage position is going to be worse in three weeks than it was now. Why? Well, think about it this way. Here, we're a week away from the Super Bowl. So I'll use a football analogy. The first shutdown was uh, two opponents going at each other, uh, let's say in the regular season, and uh, and Trump's playing a home game because after all, he's the president of the United States. That gives him a lot of advantages, like, for instance, being able to get network television time for a national address to talk about this uh, alleged national emergency on the border, right? Well, he got his butt kicked at home. The second game they're going to play against the divisional rival is away. It's on the road. So if he just got his butt kicked at home, how is he going to win on the road? 
that's hard to imagine how that happens because a lot of the weapons he had at his disposal are no longer there. Yeah, eventually he's going to get the State of the Union, but I don't see how that's going to be a massive game changer. The reality is, perception is reality. Perception is he got his butt kicked by Nancy Pelosi. She suffered not at all for standing up to him. In fact, she gained. He lost. He can't He can't go to the well on a second shutdown because we just went through and saw how that ended. He, he has no ability to bluff his way through that because no one's going to buy it. The American patience is done with this. So it's just going to be a re- if he goes through it, it's just going to be a redo of the first one. Only, as I said, instead of being at home, he's now on the road. So he's even more certain of losing. Now, there, there's still Trump sycophants, people like Bill O'Reilly, you know, people like that, who think that this is, no, 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 do not doubt the master chess player, Donald Trump. Because, you know, after all, with Trump. With me, it's just works. You know, it's magic. Yeah, by magic, this is all going to work out. He's playing 18-dimensional chess. No, he's not. He's not playing 18-dimensional chess. And, but the people that think that he still is, the people that still think that, this is an analogy that, that I think will work, and it'll show, by the way, how much um, children's television I watch with two young daughters. In the uh, Toy Story series, which they're about to ruin with Toy Story 4 uh, later this year, you know, in, in Toy Story 1, Buzz Lightyear comes into the, uh, into the group of toys. He's the space ranger. And uh, he's got all these flashing lights and the bravado and the big ego. And, uh, and it's doubted by, um, by some of the other toys, including Woody, the main toy, the, the cowboy, as to whether or not he's a real space ranger and whether he can really fly. So, so Woody is kind of like the, uh, the never Trumpers. Right, like back in the in the in the campaign of 2016, you can't do this. You're just you're just a toy, and Buzz ends up falling off the bed, but doing so in such a spectacular fashion, it looks like he's flying, and the rest of the toys are in awe. Oh my gosh! Wow, Buzz Lightyear can really fly. Well, that's Trump winning the 2016 election by dumb luck. And with some Russian help, Buzz Lightyear actually flies. Trump wins the election. And all these moronic toys, then from then on, think of Buzz Lightyear as this magical space ranger when he's just really a dumb toy who got really lucky once. That's Trump, right? That is Trump in a nutshell when it comes to this chess versus checkers thing. He's just a dumb toy. But his followers think he's Buzz fucking Lightyear. And we're going to see Buzz Lightyear not be able to fly again in three weeks. How that will turn out, I don't know. But it is it is amazing to me. And we've said this a million times, but it bears repeating. You cannot stop repeating how unbelievable it is that little things that appear little now, like the Washington Post just revealed in the last 24 hours, that Donald Trump has been has his golf courses have been firing illegal immigrants. The liberal media calls them undocumented 
workers, has been firing illegal immigrants from his golf courses because they don't use E-Verify. And they, in the middle of the shutdown, I guess, finally got nervous that somebody was going to make a big issue of the massive hypocrisy of Donald Trump's golf courses hiring illegal aliens, which they've done for years. And I guarantee you they're doing it all over the place. This specifically was in the Bedminster uh, golf course in New Jersey. But you know, I've spent a lot of time at uh, Trump National in Palos Verdes here in Southern California. Trump National in Palos Verdes is less than three miles from San Pedro. San Pedro might as well be Mexico, folks. I have I have I spent the Fourth of July in San Pedro, California, and I was the only uh, person I was certain of uh, citizenship that was there. Maybe my wife, my, my then girlfriend, who was living in San Pedro at the time, uh, and that was about it. Uh, now that doesn't mean that they weren't all citizens, but let me tell you. I, I am quite confident that at Trump National and Palos Verdes, there are undocumented workers working at Donald Trump's golf course. This is a story that in a normal world would be a massive scandal, given Trump's uh, position on illegal immigration and building the wall, blah, 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 blah. In, in fact, this issue of hiring illegal immigrants used to be a death sentence for politicians. There are Dozens, I'm, I'm guessing, but I, I'm, I know of several major politicians who had their careers destroyed over revelations that they had been hiring undocumented workers. With Trump, you would think it would be even more lethal, but he is so inoculated against every possible virus now that nothing can kill him with the cult. They can rationalize anything and everything. It's unbelievable. But so I don't know what's going to happen in three weeks. I, I do know that that there there I don't see a scenario where it's any better than what turned out. It can only be worse than what currently happened. And uh, and you know I'm sure that the the Trump folks will rationalize it in some way. Trump, looking at this as logically as I can, and logic unfortunately doesn't have the power that it should or used to. Trump needs a fall guy. I think that's what's going to happen. Trump is going to try to find a fall guy. Now, whether that calls, you know, means he's going to call for a national emergency and then blame the courts when they they call that invalid, I don't know. That's possible. By the way, how do you uh, how do you get away with declaring a national emergency three weeks from now when when you held a nationally televised address? Three weeks ago, and that point will be six weeks ago, where you didn't declare a national emergency when people speculated that you might, nothing has changed in the interim except six weeks has gone by, but now it's a national emergency. And oh, by the way, your your solution to this national emergency is to build a wall that will take years and years and years at best? I mean, come on. No one's going to buy that. Nobody. I mean, again, other than Colt 45 when they buy everything, every time. But the reality is more than two-thirds of the people and, and anybody who matters in a court system is not going to buy that. But it might not matter. He just needs someone to blame so he can move on. He needs a scapegoat. And, uh, you know, getting his ass whipped by, by Nancy Pelosi is quite something. 
and, and I, I often tweet out the photograph that um, I have, and I, it's amazing how little publicity this has gotten. Uh, but, uh, you know, Trump actually sent Nancy Pelosi in 2007, which is so such a Trumpy thing to do. Imagine the ego that you have to have to do this. Nancy Pelosi becomes Speaker of the House in 2007, and Donald Trump sends her the front page of the newspaper with her photograph on it with him writing to her, Nancy, you're the greatest, Donald Trump. Uh, and I don't know if she displayed that somewhere because there's a photograph of it, uh, which I have tweeted out numerous times and even made news. Somebody did a news story over the fact that I, um, that I mentioned this on Twitter. And, uh, and my guess is he thinks that he's buddies with Nancy and Nancy's having none of it. And interestingly, Nancy, in light of the Roger Stone arrest, has made her most dramatic statements yet on Twitter regarding Russia and Trump, uh, wondering what it is that Vladimir Putin has on Donald Trump. And that's really interesting because you know Nancy Pelosi has been, frankly, among the Democrats, and for good reason, because she knew she was going to be speaker and be in charge of a potential impeachment hearing or, de- or de- deciding whether there would be such a thing as an impeachment hearing effectively. Uh, she has been on the softer side when it comes to going after Trump on Russia. But that has changed after Roger Stone's arrest. And so, so let's talk about uh, Roger Stone's arrest right now. So on Friday, before the, uh, the shutdown was officially uh, stalled, Roger Stone, longtime associate of Donald Trump, was arrested by the FBI early on in the morning. Now, let me get this, this garbage out of the way right off the bat. It is amazing the ability of the state-run news media and Colt 45 to latch on to anything and anything they possibly can to uh, not have to focus on the actual story. What they decided to focus on with regard to Roger Stone's arrest on seven charges of obstruction and witness tampering and perjury and some other things, it was that CNN happened to be there to record his arrest. And in the mind of the diseased Colt 45 member, aha, this is proof somehow that the entire thing is a scam, that there is collusion, real collusion between Mueller and the FBI and CNN, because how else could CNN be there? As if it makes a fucking difference. What fucking difference does it possibly make whether or not there was video of the FBI raiding Roger Stone's house, well, not really raiding his house, knocking on his door and demanding he open up and arresting him. Uh, what difference does that make? And what, what I, I honestly don't know. I, I can't even, what difference does it make? I, I get the idea, okay, how did CNN know to be there? Well, we have a very rational explanation. We have on air CNN people the night before speculating that there was some weird stuff going on with the Mueller grand jury and that this might be mean something big was going to happen the next day because everything was off of the normal schedule. And then on a hunch, CNN just decided to be outside of Roger Stone's house. Why? Well, because the previous week, Rudy Giuliani, and I wrote about this twice at Mediate, Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, 
said on national TV, if you even come close to reading between the lines, that the campaign had colluded with WikiLeaks. Well, who was the person that was connected most within the Trump circle to WikiLeaks? Roger Stone. This does not take a rocket fucking scientist to figure out that what was happening is that Rudy was getting ahead of the story, putting it out there. Oh, by the way, <laughs> you're going to find this funny, guys. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, there may have been some collusion between uh, the Trump campaign and uh, WikiLeaks. But, uh, hey, look, I'm crazy. So don't take anything I say too, too seriously. But I am going to put it out there just so that, you know, when it happens and people uh, find out about this, they're not totally shocked. And that it's, uh, it's not a bigger news story than it needs to be. That's what Rudy was doing. And Rudy is crazy, but sometimes he's crazy like a fox. And so he put it out there. Everyone knows it. Everyone's going, oh, that's an admission that Roger Stone was engaged in whatever we want to call it, colluding with, conspiring with WikiLeaks, probably with Jerome Corsi. And he's admitting to it. And now we have this weird stuff going on with the grand jury. It did not take much for CNN to realize, hmm, let's let's make sure we got a camera on uh, on Roger Stone's house. And by the way, did you see the video? The video was horrendous. So if this was all part of some sort of setup, it was the worst setup of all time. This was CNN just getting lucky and not really executing very well. And it's totally irrelevant to the larger issue, which is why is the president's longest political associate. And by the way, he's even more than that. I mean, Paul Manafort is has been quoted in a documentary saying that there's no one closer to Donald Trump than Roger Stone. Nobody. That's Paul Manafort, who's also obviously has been already pled guilty and is in jail. The, the, this was way before then. And, and he's not just his closest confidant. Effectively, when his campaign began, Roger Stone was running it. So two of the people, two of the people that were effectively in charge of Donald Trump's political operation during the 2016 presidential campaign, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, one has pled guilty and is already in prison, maybe for the rest of his life, and the other just got indicted on several major federal counts and if he ends up being found guilty is in big big trouble may die in prison the most interesting thing you know there's a lot of hysteria over roger stone giving the the uh, nixon peace sign which the which the nixon foundation had to disavow that's that's the the bizarreness of the world we're living in right now but uh I was amazed that so little was made of Stone saying, and I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but it's something like this. He declared, I will never testify against the president. And he may have even said, I'll never be forced to testify against the president or something along those lines. But he he made it very clear. I am not going to give up the president. Well, hold on a second. If the president did nothing wrong, why is that even an issue? <laughs> Why, why, why would you be saying that if there was nothing to give the president up on? What? I mean, that sounds like a guy who knows that he has something on Trump, but is going to go to his death as a martyr. 
for the cause of Donald Trump and cult 45. So look, um, you know, we don't know for sure that, uh, Roger Stone is guilty, but it certainly looks like it based upon the, uh, the statements by Rudy Giuliani. I mean, Rudy Giuliani didn't say, you know, that, 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 uh, look, uh, we think Mueller's on a witch hunt regarding the campaign and WikiLeaks. He effectively said, you know, um, look, there, there may have been collusion between the campaign and WikiLeaks, but Trump wasn't involved. He was trying to, to build a moat around Donald Trump, effectively saying Rudy did. And this was pretty funny. I, I got to give it, give him credit for the effort, effectively saying that if Trump wasn't involved in the actual hacking of the DNC email server, then he's, he's free. <laughs> No crime. If, if Trump wasn't actually there on the keyboard trying to get into the computer <laughs> for WikiLeaks or demanding that WikiLeaks do this, although, by the way, we have a videotape of Donald Trump publicly asking Russia to get into Hillary's emails, and then, lo and behold, guess what happened that night? They tried to do exactly that. So I don't know, I don't know what else you have to do to provide evidence of quote-unquote collusion, but it certainly looks bad for Roger Stone. But the most interesting thing about the Stone indictments to me and some others was the implication, and it's, it was confirmed via sources later, that the person who instructed Roger Stone to do this was Steve Bannon. Now, that's interesting. That's really troubling for Trump. Correct. Because, and here's why, all right? Let's presume it is Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon hasn't been charged with anything. Let's use our logic, folks. Why has Steve Bannon not been charged with anything? How do they know that Roger Stone was instructed by Steve Bannon? I would submit that the most logical, simplest, Oxum's razor explanation is that Steve Bannon has told Robert Mueller he instructed Roger Stone to engage with WikiLeaks over the stolen emails. If that is correct, which I think it is correct, then Trump could be in big trouble because that would indicate that Steve Bannon has flipped. Because that would explain why Steve Bannon has not been charged. Now, those who don't know Steve Bannon will think, that's outrageous. He was Trump's, you know, most vocal supporter. And yes, Trump fucked him over, but he's still been supportive of Trump to a certain degree. Uh, Look, I was once a a member in, in good standing of the right wing conspiracy. I still know some people in the right wing conspiracy. I still know some people at Breitbart. There are people at Breitbart who are convinced, one, that this WikiLeaks thing is very real because there were rumors about it at the time, way before all this. During the campaign, there were rumors at Breitbart that this was happening. Number two, there are people there who believe that Steve Bannon would flip on Donald Trump in a heartbeat if it was in his self-interest to do so. And if Steve Bannon has slipped on Donald Trump, we're in a whole new ballgame. Now, there's a lot of ifs there, but that's a pretty clear path. 
And that, to me, was the most interesting thing about what we learned from the Roger Stone indictments. Now, I, I will still say, and I've been literally betting, that Donald Trump is going to survive all this. So, and I, I'm not changing my mind on that. I, I, there's two different issues here. There are more than two, but at least two. There's the issue of what actually happened, what can be proven. So I guess there's three issues. What actually happened, what can be proven, and what people will care about. All right? I am still in the camp of it doesn't matter <laughs> what actually happened or what can be proven unless there's something we really don't know about. Based upon the current universe of things we think we know, none of that is going to matter when it comes to removing Donald Trump from office. I still care because I want to know what the truth is. And I still care because I would like to believe in some semblance of justice and accountability. But in a realistic perspective on this, there's nothing that I see yet that makes me go, okay, Trump's in big trouble for getting removed from office. I'm talking about Trump's in big trouble. When I say if Bannon flipped, I'm talking about, okay, we're going to find out that Trump really did collude and that Trump was directing all this. And there's been a lot more evidence in that direction lately, although some of it does cut against what is the perceived collusion theory. And, I, and to me, since the last time we spoke, the two most important things that we've learned, and, and, and I think the narrative is starting to take shape a little bit more clearly now, is obviously the concession by Rudy on WikiLeaks combined with the Stone uh, arrest. So we now know, let's, let's be real world here, folks. We now know that elements of the Trump campaign and Trump is trying to somehow distance himself from Stone as not being part of the campaign, but that's bullshit. So, but we now know that parts of the Trump campaign was conspiring with WikiLeaks. Now, unfortunately, that means that from a perception standpoint, Colt 45 is still going to be able to claim, well, Stone's not really the campaign and WikiLeaks is really not Russia. That's bullshit. They're, the they're one and the same, but there's enough plausible deniability there where you're not going to get 80% uh, of the country in favor of removal. You might get 60%, but you need, you need probably 80 to, to make this happen, uh, to get Trump removed from office. But the other thing, which to me is by far the biggest revelation of this entire Trump-Russia saga by now, is we now know not only was Trump lying about doing business with Russia, we know what business he was trying to do with Russia, and we now know from Rudy's own statements, although he's tried to walk them back, that this was going on all the way through the entire campaign up until his election. Correct. Which is, it's unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is by far the biggest revelation in all of this. That Trump was trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow in a deal that wasn't with some some random Russian landowner that he was trying to, to buy the land from and get permission to build this tower. No, no, no. This was a deal with the Russian government, which may have involved effectively a bribe to Vladimir Putin, giving him the penthouse. Now, that's not been 100% confirmed, but that's been reported. And this was happening 
It didn't end in January, as Michael Cohen erroneously testified to Congress. It didn't even end in June when the infamous Trump Tower in New York ha- uh, happened with the, the uh, Russian operatives. According to Rudy, yeah, this, you know, might have happened all the way up to, I don't know, October, November 2016. I don't know. I don't know. You know, something happened in, the, in November 2016 that may have been relevant to this, but I can't quite put my, my finger on it. What You mean he did this all the way up to the election? That, all the way, the whole time, the whole time. He's lying constantly. That's number one. But more importantly, he's using the Republican presidential nomination as a vehicle to do a land deal with a foreign adversary? What the fuck? Now, I have to hand it to the Trump people. They have managed to take what is likely the bombshell. I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible. I think there's a, we now finally have an explanation for why all the lies. Okay, because to have all the lies, you need to be hiding something, right? Well, what are you hiding? Well, it's got to be big enough to justify lies under oath and, and put yourself in potential legal jeopardy. So what is that? This potentially would be it. This is potentially big enough. This is, holy shit, not only were we lying during the whole campaign, we were using our nomination thinking we were going to lose to to forward a land deal and maybe even bribing Vladimir Putin, that to me is big enough you would want to lie about to protect. That's big enough, which we'll get to Cohen's lie in a minute, to Congress because of the whole BuzzFeed thing. The reality is that Trump could have, and ironically, I think this is, might his cult is so strong, he might not have really had to worry about it as much as he, as he thought that this could have been the thing they were protecting. We can't let this get out because this will destroy us. Because even our cult isn't fucking stupid enough to realize how wrong this is, how dangerous this is. Well, he he overestimated his own cult. I mean, let's be clear about that. I love the poorly educated. Because his cult would have put up with this. Now, you know, I've used the analogy that had we known about this before the wedding, then it would have mattered. Like, if you think about Trump as the, the rich guy you're marrying, and then you get hit like a week before the wedding that he's been sexting with this hot babe, uh, and uh, we don't know if there's been actual sex or not, but he's been trying to have sex with her. If you get hit with that before the wedding, there's a good chance, you know what, you're going to call it off. But now you've been married for two years. He's been buying you all sorts of nice stuff. He's been trying to get you that big wall he promised. He hasn't been able to get that done, but you're still hoping he's going to be able to get you that wall he promised. And um, and and you know what? At this point, a divorce is just too much aggravation. It's too embarrassing. So we're just going to pretend that, you know what, boys will be boys. Businessmen will be. I love this one. He's allowed to do business. What? Not as the Republican presidential nominee with a foreign adversary and lie about it. Do you not understand? My God, if, if, if Hillary, can you imagine if Hillary had done this uh, and she was president? She, In all seriousness, she already would have been impeached. She already would have been impeached by a Republican uh, Congress. Zero question about that uh, whatsoever. Now, uh, this leads me to the, uh, the Michael Cohen lie to Congress and the BuzzFeed story that made so much news and then 
the Mueller tapped, not in the, didn't just tap it down, he knifed it in the back. The story that uh, BuzzFeed claimed that Mueller has evidence that Trump directed Cohen to lie. Now, I'm not sure what Mueller was doing, on what basis he was saying that the story is, quote, not accurate. I've written a couple times about this uh, at Mediate, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But but here's my bottom line on this. I have no problem believing that Mueller is true or accurate or truthful. I find it hilarious, by the way, that Trump and the cult automatically leapt on everything Mueller was saying as if, aha, see, Mueller says it's not true, so it must not be true because, because, wait, wait a minute. Are we saying that Mueller is the truthful guy here? Is, are we saying he's not on a witch hunt? Wait a minute. That, of course, that, that kind of self-awareness never hits the Trump cult. But, but I digress. The, the reality is I have no problem believing that Mueller is truthful when he says there's a problem with the BuzzFeed story. It is quite possible to me that he takes umbrage, one, with the implication of the leak, but two, the level and nature of the proof that they have that Trump lied about, uh, I mean, I'm sure that Trump told Cohen to lie to Congress. That could be the crux of the issue. And here's why I think it's the crux of the issue. What's the alternative explanation? What is the alternative explanation for why Cohen lied? No one wants to come up with one because this is not a normal lie. All right. I actually think people are confused about what Cohen pled guilty to lying about. This is not the Stormy Daniels business, folks. This is Trump Moscow. All right. Now, if you're asked under oath, think about this from Cohen's perspective. Can you please put on your thinking caps for a second? If you're asked about something, let's say it was the Stormy Daniels deal. Cohen doesn't need to be told to lie about Stormy Daniels, right? Stormy Daniels is something it's understood you lie about. Partially because Cohen himself has some culpability and, and vulnerability on that from a campaign finance standpoint. So he has a self-interest to lie. He doesn't need to be told to lie. And you can just flat out deny that it ever happened. That's a, that is a, it's a quote unquote, sensible, logical lie, even under oath. It might be stupid, but at least there's some reason for it. That doesn't exist here. This is not a denial that the Trump Moscow project never happened. This is a change, a critical change in the timeline from what we thought was June to now January. What's January 2016? That's before the Republican nominating process starts. So so Cohen is strategically trying to shift it to a place where it's not as politically damaging because he's not technically running for... He is technically, but... At least you can plausibly claim, well, the primaries hadn't started yet, so he got rid of this, and he wasn't lying about it during the campaign, and it didn't, in fact, impact anything he did during the campaign, like, for instance, the changing of the GOP platform in a way that Russia would like, that kind of stuff. So the change to January is incredibly substantive, but it's also incredibly specific. How does Cohen know to change it to January? How does he know to do that? Did he just do this out of his own fucking imagination? Knowing that Donald Trump, Don Jr., and others were going to be asked the same fucking question? Here he is under oath to Congress. 
So he's going to put his own personal freedom on the line, not to mention his law license, on a whim? On a whim, he's just going to decide, you know what, I'm going to change this to January. How the fuck does that make any sense? And the most interesting theory I've heard about this, and again, this has not gotten nearly as much attention as it should. You know, the, the perception here is that Cohen flips on Trump. I think Trump flipped on Cohen. And I think it was actually fucking brilliant on Trump's part. Here's what I think happened. I can't prove this, but here's what I think happened. I think Trump probably with some semblance of plausible deniability because he's not nearly as dumb as some people think he is. He's not a genius, but he's pretty good at this kind of stuff. The I think he he makes it clear to Cohen, uh, you're not going to be talking about uh, us doing this deal during the campaign, right? Something along those lines. Cohen says, yeah, boss, sure. He testifies to Congress no, no, that it was January because, you know, in his mind, that's when the campaign starts. All right. Trump waits to te- he, do- he dodges Mueller's uh, request for an interview, even though he promised he was going to give one. Trump waits and waits and waits and waits and waits. He refuses to testify like a, a coward that he is. And then he finally provides written answers but he doesn't provide the written answers until he has enough information about what other people like Cohen have said. And I think, and this goes to what Rudy said, I think Trump was actually somewhat truthful in his answer. I think he threw Cohen under the bus by saying, no, this actually happened, uh, could have happened all the way through the end of the campaign. And what does that do? That throws Cohen under the bus, makes him vulnerable to perjury while also making it more difficult to to prosecute or convict or convince the public that Trump suborned the perjury because why would he suborn the perjury if in his own answers he said something totally different than what Cohen was instructed to lie about? Well, because Trump was smart enough to wait to find out what the lay of the land was. And so I actually think part of why Cohen was forced to confess to the lie to Congress was because they had Trump's own answers. Now, there's another element of this BuzzFeed story that, again, isn't proving, doesn't prove it, but I think it's important because of the way the world works. BuzzFeed is not backing away from the story. They're tripling down on it. And I even got a direct message from Ben Smith, the head of BuzzFeed. I'm not going to give you the, the details of what he told me, but uh, it made it very clear to me that he thought I was on the right track with my theory and that he's very eager for the truth of this whole thing to come out. That doesn't sound like a guy who's worried to me about having gotten the essence of that story right. But proving it is another matter entirely. And I I still don't believe they're going to be able to prove it to the extent that they're going to need to, especially all this time later. I think that Trump has won the expectations game. I wrote a column about that, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which I think is critical. And I'm still not convinced that, you know, to use the relationship analogy that I've used many times, that Trump and Russia actually hooked up. I think that uh, there was a lot of flirting. There was a lot of inappropriate contact, partially because I'm not sure Russia wanted to or thought that Trump was hot enough. I think they were worried about getting an STD. And I'm not sure that there was actual full-on collusion or hooking up between the two. But, you know, I'm open. 
I'm still open. I'm, I'm still in the same place I've been. Inching every week towards clearly guilty, but going to get away with this. That's, that's what I see as the reality of what's going to happen here. A couple other things real quick. I've gone longer than I expected uh, during this hour of the program, but um, some real very quick thoughts on, on other stuff. Obviously, it's outrageous that the, the Republican Party has effectively declared that they don't want there to be a primary uh, on the very same day when Roger Stone is getting arrested and the Trump and Trump shutdown is ending in disaster. It's it's right out of George Orwell's 1984. And I'm now beginning to think there may not be a primary challenge to Trump, which would just be pathetic. Just just unbelievable. I mean, if you, you look at the it's just flat out ridiculous, you look at it, the numbers. There is not one other modern incumbent ever. I mean, my God, uh, um, you know, Johnson, for heaven's sakes, uh, didn't run for re-election because of, of his re-election numbers, which were nowhere near as bad as Trump's in 1968. I, um, any other incumbent who, and Trump currently loses to every other Democrat easily, which is not good news for Biden because his whole... Uh, argument is electability. But in any other situation, there would be a vigorous primary against an incumbent president. And because of that fear, the Republican Party is trying to block that from happening, which is just beyond outrageous, but so typical of where we are in this Colt 45 era. As far as the Democrats are concerned, Bernie Sanders is in. I think this actually helps Joe Biden, uh, who I see as the, the guy who is by far the most uh, palpable uh, alternative that the Democrats have and the one who's most certain beating uh, Donald Trump. I think it helps him, one, in that Bernie's not going to win the nomination, but he takes up a lot of the uh, wackadoodle energy on the left, uh, takes it away from Beto or, or some maybe Elizabeth Warren, uh, maybe uh, Camilla Harris, uh, maybe some other people, it makes it more difficult for them to gain traction and get up into the, you know, the teens or the 20s and the polls to where they can compete with Biden in the perception game and the money game. Um, I also think, by the way, that Bernie Sanders getting in makes Joe Biden seem less ancient because nobody seems as old as Bernie. So if Bernie's up there, <laughs> I think Joe actually seems a little bit spry. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually... Um, becoming more pessimistic about Biden's chances because it is, it's so clear to me that the Democrats are going to freak out of their minds, that this is going to be the, the nuttiest primary ever. They're going to overreact to Trump, uh, much like uh, Republicans did in 2016 to Obama. They, too much of their base has lost their fucking minds, and I don't know who's going to emerge victorious, but it's hard for me to imagine that it's going to be Joe Biden. That doesn't mean Joe Biden can't win. In a, in a, he has a lot of advantages, in a, a multi-candidate primary where he has far more name recognition uh, and a lot of other advantages, especially if Obama steps in on, on his behalf. Uh, but it's by no, no shape or form a certain deal. I also wrote a column on the entire Covington Catholic fiasco, which is uh, basically my column was this whole story is so stupid, so incredibly dumb that uh, it shows that our, uh, how insanely uh, idiotic our entire media culture has become. There's not one part of that story uh, that is newsworthy. It is a non-event. Uh, the only thing I find interesting is that it definitely goes to show how the news media is all about narrative. It's all about biography. 
It's all about seeing things through the prism uh, that you want to see them through. And as soon as you see uh, white teenage pro-life boys in red MAGA hats from rural Kentucky, uh, you know they're the bad guys. And you see a guy who's a Native American banging a drum, and to liberals, he's the good guy. Doesn't matter what the facts are, doesn't matter what the context is, that's the reality. We've seen it many, many times before. I, I've said many times this is what happened in the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case. Everyone saw central casting, and they decided to, to g- pigeonhole the facts to fit what it is they, they wanted to believe in the first place, and it was an injustice. Uh, this, you know, Hopefully the story is finally going away. As is usually the case, there's a John Ziegler connection. In fact, there's two. Uh, my good friend Congressman John Yarmouth got in trouble because he made a joke about banning all red uh, teenagers wearing uh, red Make America Great Again hats. It was a clear joke. He was effectively uh, make, you know, making fun of a famous quote from President Trump, but that made huge news as if he was trying to ban the uh, wearing, as if he could, as the, the head of the Budget Committee in Congress to ban a red Make America Great Again hats. I chided him over text over his joke. Uh, but uh, he he said he did not expect it to go nearly as viral as it did, but boy, did it ever. And then uh, the other uh, quote-unquote John Ziegler connection is that the uh, the, the teenage boy, uh, Sandman, uh, who, uh, you know, basically just sat there and stood his ground and maybe gave a smirk under highly pressurized circumstances, he's just hired an attorney named Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood's a friend of mine. We've had him on this podcast before. Uh, he He's come to fame because of, uh, the uh, Jean Bonnet Ramsey case, which interestingly, Lynn Wood just got a, a great settlement on because uh, he was going after CBS because of that ridiculous special they did claiming that Jean Bonnet Ramsey's brother had killed her in that famous case, which was total bullshit. Uh, an enemy of mine from the Penn State case, Jim Clemente, was the host of that show. So I was thrilled that Lynn Wood got a little. Uh, uh, justice against Jim Clemente, but now Lynn Wood is going to be uh, going after media organizations for their treatment of Sandman. So I'll, I'll be curious to see what happens there. I asked Lynn to come on the show today, but he's actually getting rep- ready for a big deposition tomorrow, and he said he, he would do it some other time. Um, finally, we got the Super Bowl coming up next week. I was very, uh, the, the guy who hates injustice in me was horrified by what happened to the Saints with that non uh, pass interference call against the, uh, the the Rams, especially considering how wussified the NFL has become on helmet-to-helmet helmet contact, and they don't call that. It, it was absolutely, utterly insane. It was just flat-out ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, I was also upset because, um, speaking, everything goes back to Penn State for me. Uh, people don't realize that, uh, that uh, Jerry Sandusky's son is actually a saint scout. So uh, that would have been really cool. Uh, for then to win the Super Bowl, and uh, you know maybe Mary, maybe for Jerry dies, he got to uh, wear a Super Bowl ring since his since uh, his other son Matt stole his two national championship uh, rings and got away with it because he's got the halo of an alleged fake uh, accuser. Uh, that would have been some semblance of justice there, but that wasn't going to happen. Uh, obviously, I live in Los Angeles, and we're doing this show from from the from Los Angeles. I got to tell you, there is absolutely no evidence that Los Angeles cares about the Rams being in the Super Bowl. None at all. I was in um, Thousand Oaks uh, the other day, the day after they they won this amazing uh, overtime victory. And Thousand Oaks is a couple miles. I was in Thousand Oaks Mall, which is a couple miles away from where the Rams practice and where a lot of the Rams 
organization, the people that work for the organization live. So you would think, I mean, you're in, you're just outside of Los Angeles. You're in a place that is particularly connected to the team. You're in a mall where there's a lot of people. I saw zero evidence that the Rams were going to the Super Bowl. Zero. Not a hat, not a t-shirt, not a jacket, not a sign, nothing. The only thing I saw was there was some merchandise tables where there was some NFC Championship Ram stuff that looked like it had been completely untouched. Totally untouched. There is zero indication Los Angeles gives a shit. Uh, and, and here we have two teams now, the Rams and the Chargers in Los Angeles, all because of this massive uh, brand-new stadium being built in Los Angeles. Uh, one other note about the Super Bowl, you know, Tom Brady we get uh, jaded by because he's so amazing, his ninth Super Bowl, which is insane. But here is how crazy the Tom Brady story is now. You know, his first Super Bowl was a Rams-Patriots Super Bowl. The Rams back then were in St. Louis. That was after the 2001 season. You know, the quarterback that he went up against in, in his first Super Bowl was Kurt Warner, who was only in effectively his second season at the time. Here, Brady is now in the Super Bowl again in another Rams-Patriots Super Bowl. Warner has been retired so long, he's in the Hall of Fame. And Brady is still quarterbacking in the Super Bowl. It's unbelievable. And finally, uh, one other football note. I do this every year. You know, tonight is the Pro Bowl, which is barely even a football game now. And the reason why this is significant, to me, the, the joke that the Pro Bowl has become is not only a warning about where football is headed, how soft it's going to be in the future, and it's going to get a lot softer than it already is, but it's, it's way bigger than that. The Pro Bowl is the ultimate proof of why socialism doesn't work. Because when you take away the incentives from people, then they will not try their hardest. And that's what the Pro Bowl is. The Pro Bowl is a joke because everyone is so rich and so famous and there's nothing on the line and all they're worried about is not getting hurt. And it becomes a joke, literally a joke. And, the, and when you look at the difference between the Super Bowl next week and the intensity of that where there's actually something on the line and the absurdity of the Pro Bowl where there's nothing on the line and the, the vast difference in the level of intensity and effort and, and play, you realize, aha, hmm, maybe human beings need incentives. Otherwise, they just don't try. And that's why the Pro Bowl is the ultimate proof that socialism doesn't work. All right, that's a, a very, very long hour of the World According to Zig podcast, longer than I expected. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, as I said, please uh, pay attention to my uh, social media pages, Twitter and Facebook, for updates on the brand-new uh, Trump-focused uh, podcast via the Global Story Network, which will be coming out soon. We'll have more information on that uh, hopefully in the next few days. As always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, Please, uh, if you do, tag me, and I'll share it as well. Uh, share it uh, via word of mouth. And then number two, uh, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who uh, sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. 
What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.